Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Mostly Borrowed Ideas. He's an equity analyst who runs the popular website, MBI Deep Dives. On a monthly basis, he publishes extreme deep dives about different companies, and he also provides updates on companies and his portfolio. He's originally from Bangladesh and pursued his MBA at Cornell, graduating in the top 10%. He's a CFA charter holder and was an equity analyst at Madison Investments. We have a similar process where we research companies that aren't necessarily a good investment at the moment, but try to understand the company before Mr. Market makes them available at a compelling price. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. Great to have you here. So how did you first develop your interest in investing? Yeah, I think, you know, my, so like nobody in my family has any investing background or anything like, you know, I, I don't think anybody except me in my extended family invests their money, you know? So, and obviously except me and my wife, everyone is still in Bangladesh of my like extended family. So yeah. And even in Bangladesh, stock market is basically still in its nascent stage. It's, it's very, you know, it's nowhere close to as sophisticated as like U.S. market is. So maybe for a good reason, they don't really invest in Bangladesh. That's Bangladesh stock market. So for my kind of investing journey, like I, I didn't even think about investing, I would say up until college. So when I went to college in Bangladesh, I took a course titled financial management. And the professor was just, you know, he, he did his MBA from Emory University, so from, from U.S. And, you know, he was just so, he was definitely, he stood out among all our professors in, in Bangladesh. And I, I just, you know, probably, you know, by influence by him, I, I kind of came across like Aswad Damodaran's website back then. So I kind of spent, started spending more time there. I obviously, you know, came across Warren Buffett's letters and I kind of started reading those. And like over time, I think by the time I was senior, I was in the senior year in college, I was like, you know, I, I got the investing bug and I, I thought, you know, I was majoring in finance. So I was like, okay, you know, my, my impression was that since I'm doing like I'm majoring in finance, I should also focus on investing and I should learn how to kind of, you know, do good investing. So I would say in the early, earlier years, it was mostly, you know, after my, you know, after I took that course in college, I kind of got hooked to like different as aspects of investing. Then I basically, once I kind of went through Buffett's letters, it was almost like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to kind of, you know, this is what I want to learn. And I, I think I started, yeah, I started investing in 2013 in Bangladesh, you know, market. And then I, once I moved to US in 2017, I waited for like a for like a year. Like you know, I still needed to get my social security number and all that. And I think I I got my social security number like in 2018, probably like a couple of weeks later after I got my social security number, I started investing in the US. So that's in August 2018. So 
I've been kind of investing for like last 10 years or so, but in the US, I've been investing for like the last five years or so. Awesome. Yeah, it's been a wild five years in the market. <laughs> you picked an interesting yeah. time to get started. No, I feel like it was a great five-year period. Like there's a lot, like, you know, there's a lot that was happening. Like you had, I started in August, 2018. And if you remember, there's a, there was like a, like a noticeable like drawdown in Q4 of 2018. Like, yeah, know, December. Uh, yeah. It was, it was, it was yeah. interesting. Like a lot of these big tech companies, like Apple was down like 40, like Apple had a 40% drawdown in actually for a fourth quarter of 2018, like Facebook, Google, like every, everything kind of, you know, had like, like significant drawdown, like 30, 40% drawdown. And so that was like my first taste. And I, I, I you, know, you know, I had a, like a kind of jarring experience. And I honestly thought, I started thinking that maybe the transition from Bangladesh market to US market is just too fast. Like, you know, maybe I need to take a step back because, you know, I just thought things are much more volatile, you know, and, and even the like companies that, you know, people generally agree to be good businesses, have like significant volatility, you know, than I kind of realized. So, but I, I'm glad that I kind of, you know, started around the time of volatility. So I, you know, the, like, it's like, you know, touching stove, like, you know, touching hot stove, like the moment it's like, <laughs> oh my God, this thing is like, you know, <laughs> you can lose money for sure, right? So even if you are investing in some of the best businesses in the world, you can certainly lose money. And, and like after that, like, you know, I would say 2019 was relatively, you know, mild in, in, uh, in retrospect. Then like you have COVID, then you have like, you know, the stimulus thing, then you have this, you know, eight, 9% inflation that we haven't seen like, you know, 40, 50 years, right? So, and then now apparently you have tamed inflation in like, you know, in a year or so. So there's this lot of like, you know, like the kind of violent shift in narratives and, you know, and how that affects, you know, the businesses and, and, and investing in general. I think it was an eye-opening experience, eye-opening in a four or five-year period. And, you know, I, I feel like if I started in 2013 in, in the U.S., yes, I would probably have made more money, you know, because you know, I sometimes kind of believe the multiples that some of these businesses were trading at in, back in 2013. But, like, I feel like the, you know, your learning curve in 2013 to 2018 it is, it's, you know, would probably be, you know, slower compared to what people kind of went through between, let's say, 2018 to 2023. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of glad that I, I didn't wait too long. Like, you know, it's always great to, like, you know, if you want to learn, if you want to, if you're interested in learning how to swim, it probably helps if, if you, like, you know, go near water instead of just Googling, like, hey, like, you know, how to swim in water. Like, you know, you, you can only go too far. If you're just, you know, reading through like, you know, theoretical stuff, like you are learning in school, like how to analyze businesses, how, how to do investing or like reading Warren Buffett's letters and all that, like, you know, and unless you actually try your hand, unless you are actually in, like you're actually investing and not just paper portfolio, that's like a different, you know, ball game altogether. Like, you know, paper, paper portfolio is probably fine if you are just starting, but I feel like you always learn more when you're actually investing with your own money. I agree with that. Yeah, it's one thing to just know about it theoretically. It's totally different experience once you actually start putting real money to work. So you profile a lot of really interesting companies. It seems like you're geared towards quality is, is your focus. So how do you go about that? How do you decide what companies you want to research? You do 
a very extreme deep dive once a month. I mean, your your articles are super intense and 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 in depth. So how do you decide before embarking on one of those projects for a month? Like how what which company to pursue? Yeah, I think I have, you know, I don't know whether it's a different opinion or not, but my, you know, my perception is if you're doing fundamental investing, I think screening just inherently doesn't work. Like it feels contradictory if you're screening companies with some multiples and all that. Like think about what is quantitative investing, right? It is basically screening. Like you are, you have some sort of algorithm, you have some sort of methods, like, you know, you want to buy uh, companies at this multiple and, and, and like, you know, you have, a, you, you have a certain method and you have, you have back tested it and you have realized that this thing works and you, you try to do that going forward, hoping that, you know, that sort of, you know, like, you know, mispricing remains and nobody else figures out at a scale that will dilute your alpha. Fundamental investing inherently means there is no formula. Like, you know, there is no set formula. If there is one formula, then that's quantitative investing. That's not fundamental investing. Like fundamental investing inherently means you're trying to predict a future that is inherently unpredictable. Like even if you're not explicitly trying to predict it, you're implicitly predicting it. Like, and if you're buying even like, you know, let's say any of this, like, you know, like Apple, for example, right? You know, you're saying, oh, I don't know what the EPS will be five years from now. You don't have to predict, like, you know, the stock price has implicit assumptions embedded what the stock, like, you know, how, how the EPS needs to grow for the stock price to be justified. Right. So, and obviously there's a range to that. There's, you know, it's EPS is not, it's one of the factors here. Obviously the multiple changes and like interest rates, they're like all different factors. All those things are kind of embedded in your kind of an assumption, even if you're not explicitly trying to predict EPS or interest rates or anything like that. So my process is basically like, I don't have any screening. I'm interested in just learning one business after another for basically as long as I'm alive. That's basically my process. And I, I am absolutely aware that there is, there is shortcomings to this process, right? Like, you know, for example, it is possible that I may spend next 24 months just, you know, spending on companies that I think are let's say, widely, widely overvalued, right? Like I'm not going to buy them for, let's say, I don't know, five years, 10 years. Who knows, right? So, but, but then again, I haven't really felt that so, so far, you know, usually market is volatile enough but it almost doesn't matter. Like, you know, let's, for example, let's say you are, let's say, let's say for, you know, again, just an example, I'm not really making a comment here. Let's say NVIDIA. Let's say NVIDIA is widely overvalued, right? It does, and, and let's say you are studying NVIDIA today and your conclusion is, you know what, NVIDIA is like, just significantly overvalued, right? And if, if it is, it doesn't matter. Probably next couple of years, the stock will probably go down 50%. And then, you may feel like, you know what? It's actually probably overpenalized because I think it's not, you know, people are misunderstanding this and that based on what I have studied, right? So what is much more important to my process is basically actually studying the company. And everybody says that, but in, I, have, I have worked at like on buy side for, for like, you know, not for too long in the US for just about a year, but that was enough for me to realize people are very like, you know, you know people are very in tune on what's going to work in the near term. Right. So if you think, if you, if you suspect NVIDIA is overvalued, you are not going anywhere near NVIDIA. Oh, that thing is overvalued. I don't need to study it. That thing is overvalued, right? But, and then when NVIDIA goes down 50%, then you start studying 
and then you get scared because oh my god people are concerned about this and that or there's like a you know channel stuffing on all that like you know all sorts of reasons and when stock goes down 50 percent, it doesn't go down without a reason people are worried about something so right study it beforehand in order to feel comfortable with you know with the range of news that is coming towards you so my process is basically very simple that you know i just want to study all sorts of companies one after another like and i have done it's like 42 companies so far i think i started i, I launched mbi deep dives in september 2020 so it's been yeah 42 companies so far and the process is pretty, so it hasn't changed and this is the funny thing at first, it may seem like, oh, just one company per month, I could probably do more, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in my experience, very, 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 very few people are disciplined enough to actually study the companies in a systematic way. People just, you know, like, for example, people, people do decide very quickly, much, probably much quicker than they should, that they just, you know, rule it out. Like, oh, I don't want to study this company. This is overvalued. I'm not going to waste my time. Wasting time, I feel like if you're doing fundamental investing, I don't know, like for me, it's part of my process. I'm, I, I'm very much willing to waste my time studying companies that I have, I have no intention to buy, let's say for a year or two or maybe even five years or maybe ever, who knows, right? I, I think it's important for me to actually also understand the businesses that I never want to own. How do I know which businesses I, I would like to own in the future? Like even, even Buffett has, like, you know, I, I think I read somewhere that he, he, yeah, he only held like on in you know, a 12, 15 companies, probably like public listed companies for like more than like 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. But he started obviously hundreds of companies, like, mm-hmm. you know, a few hundreds of companies. He obviously had to study them. And, and over time, he kind of, you know, gravitated towards this, whatever that's left over now, like in 10, 12 public listed companies that has been, you know, you know, held by him for like 10 plus years or something. So so yeah, you know, my process is like, you know, I, I don't do like, you know, valuation screening or anything like, obviously valuation is extremely important to me if I'm buying that business, but for studying, valuation is is definitely not a great, but this is something that people tell, like, you know, if when they go on a podcast or like, you know, if you're meeting an allocator, everybody talks about, oh, valuation is our last criteria. In reality, <laughs> you look into like every like manager's process, you will realize, you know, before studying NVIDIA, they're looking at the multiple, what, what it's trading at. And they're probably giving up saying, you know what, it's not bad. Why do you think, like, you know, I, this is something I kind of, you know, realized. Like, I actually met someone who have been investing for like 20 plus years covering U.S. large cap equity. Like, that was like that manager's mandate that, you mm-hmm. know, they are managing U.S. large cap equity. And they have never studied Amazon. How was it possible? The only way it's possible that you, you <laughs> realize, oh, this is like this is trading at some this and that multiple. There's no point in studying Amazon because it's just crazy. It's all right. Relevant, right. And that's how we miss the entire basically, like you know, in your career, like your 20, 30 year career, you miss such an important company that not only like you, you don't you not only missed Amazon, you probably also underestimated the challenge Amazon it was imposing to some of the companies that you own in your portfolio. That's a great point. Yeah, even if you're even if you're not necessarily going to buy a company like Amazon, it's important to understand 
the effects that it's having on other companies. And yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying about doing deep dives into companies, even when they're overvalued. Because really, when you look at any great company, there's always a period of time when it's going to be available at a good price. And you want to have already done the work where once it's available at a good price, it's a pretty simple decision. Like I've already done the work here. You don't want to have to scramble after the 50% drawdown and try to understand it. But yeah, I'm, I'm totally aligned with you. And I'm the same. Nearly every write-up that I have, my conclusion is it's probably not a great buy right now. I'm adding it to a watch list, which frustrates some of my readers, but... but Hey, that's the approach. You know, most of the time, company, you know, most of the time it's not an actionable idea, but eventually it will be. Yeah. I mean, I'm not advocating that everyone should follow my investing process reference. Like I said, there mm -hmm. are shortcomings, right? Like, you know, like I, I read last year, Buffett started looking at, you know, Japanese stocks back in the 90s. Mm. And he had never bought a single Japanese stock up until like a couple of years ago those Japanese trading companies. So imagine the level of patience that you need to have, that you have looked at companies in 1990 and started buying in 2020, like 30 years later, right? Like, obviously this is like, you know, 99.9999 percentage of people are not geared or not, not wired to study things that they are not going to take actions for like next five, 10, 15, 20 years. So this is this may not be a good fit, good match for a lot of like investors to begin with, right? And, and frankly speaking, like I'm not here, like you know, I'm not going to uh, stand here and claim, oh, this is my investing process, right? And all that it's so easy because Buffett does that, and like you know, it's so easy to gravitate towards that. But if like you know, and that's why I think investing is partly self-exploration, like what exactly you know matches your cross in investing, like in you know, philosophy, psychology. Like what you can, we, well, like what sort of volatility you can deal with? What sort of like you know ex drawdown you can deal with? Or what sort of like you know inactivity you can deal with? These are the questions you cannot answer beforehand. I cannot. Like it's been only five years. I don't know all the answers you know for myself even. Right? Like I will have much better idea who I am as an investor and like twenty years from now. I have oh like this is what I I typically do like you know. If the stock goes down 50%, I feel too nervous and I don't act and all that. Like, or maybe, you know what, it doesn't really bother me. It is, even if the stock goes down 50%, I'm happy to kind of ride it down and uh, I'm happy to kind of ride it through. But those are the kind of questions you cannot theoretically pose to yourself and expect yourself to have a very correct answer. You have to kind of go through those experiences and only through those experiences, you, you can have some conviction about who you are. I think we, we, we can be pretty good at fooling ourselves all the time, right? That, you know, we are this and that. Especially because like, you have to understand, we are, we are gravitated by success. Like we are looking at successful people, how they behave, and we want to like them. So we know how Buffett becomes successful and what Buffett does. And that, that is an enormous influence on all of us, on all fundamental investors. There's no denying about that. So we actually like for, but we are, none of us are Buffetts, right? But we're trying to borrow, you know, his process. There is an intention, you know, inherent tension in that. So obviously there are differences between how, you know, who Buffett is and who I am and who you are. And in order to figure out our own little quirks, our own little shortcomings, our own little, like, you know, strengths, 
you know, it's only time that can have the full answer. We can we can pretend today that hey, this is what I do, this is what I don't do, and all that, you know. But uh, but the reality is, we don't quite have the full answer. But you know, for you know, I have decided that despite the shortcomings, despite the fact that there may be period of inactivity in the future, I am going to try you know fundamental investing in a way that makes sense to me intellectually and whether it also makes sense behaviorally that's something that you know will probably be more clearly answered in the next like you know i don't know 5 10 15 years so far it feels like there's in a good signs that you know i'm okay with volatility i'm okay with you know being long term i'm okay with you know buying good businesses and then just you know let it be so there are good signs, but again, five years is just a small period. Like there are so many events to unfold, you know, in the next five, 10, 15 years. And who knows how I will react in, in, in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that writing helps you with that process of self-discovery and trying to find, you know, your, your style and, and your, and how you think about things? Absolutely. There's a question in my mind that writing is a big, big part of my process. Like it, like if I just did all the work and not write anything, that would be such a huge void in my process. Because, you know, in many, like I'm, I feel like I'm the most voracious reader of my own writing. Like I basically go back and, and read what I wrote. Like, you know, let's say for example, like Adian, for example, I did my deep dive in May, 2022. And I started buying like in August, this like in 2023, it's been like, you know, more than a year. So I had to go back and read my own stuff and, and basically what I was thinking, what I was worried about and what happened and all that. So like, you know, writing it down, when you are writing, like if I write down something today, I'm obviously trying to communicate with my readers, right? And I'm also trying to communicate with myself. But also this is like almost, a, you know, a, a time travel. Like, you know, my future self will also be able to talk to my past self through that comment, like through writing, right? So, you know, without writing, it's just very hard to remember what exactly I was thinking. Like, you know, if, if, if you, obviously like, you know, every stock has risk, right? So for example, let's say, let's say Meta. Meta was down 75%, like or from its peak to its, to the to the bottom in 2020, November, 2022. And obviously there are always some risks that I thought about. There are always some risks that I was, I was, you know, afraid of and if i don't write everything down it, it you know it would be very tempting when the stock is down 70 percent you know what i was always kind of concerned about this i was always about some, somewhat concerned about that and be very you know be overly generous to to what sort of risks we were actually you know wondering about in the past but when you you know it's always there's always risk in every single company what matters is like, you know, how you kind of thought about risk and the opportunity at, in different time. And it's very hard to do unless you actually write it down. And I also think when you write it down and when you try to communicate with other people, you tend to be a lot more introspective and you also tend to be a lot more open-minded in the sense, like for example, like, you know, if you are going to spend a month on a company, right? This new point in looking at valuation and saying, you know what, this is overvalued. Like what, like how do you spend the month then? You have to kind of, you know, spend the time, understand the business and ask yourself, okay, like why, why is Mr. Market being kind of stupid 
about this company? Why is it so stupid or valid? So you have to kind of force yourself to understand those people's perspective, right? And, and, and let's say when something, something is trading at like, I don't know, five times, like, you know, let's say PE multiple, you have to force yourself. Why is money on the table? Why is money left on the table? Like, why are, what are some of the beers worried about? And some, in most cases, basically what I find, you know, I am almost never like, after doing all my work, I, I have, this, this, this has happened zero times. I've never said to myself, the bulls are stupid. They have no clue what they're thinking or the bears are totally like, you know, out of their mind. There is no beer case here. I have never ever found that to be my conclusion. I've always come around and said, you know what? I can see where they're coming from, but I think they're over concerned. Like, you know, it's more likely that, like, you know, this will not be a huge deal or the company will just ride it out. You know, the, the opportunities are just, you know, the tailwinds this company faces is just too great and you know, too great for it to be bogged down by this kind of, you know, tangential risks, right? And that, that's generally speaking, like, you know, that's, you know, as an analyst, as an investor, I feel like that's my primary job. It's in my, if my primary not job is not like, oh, this company is a zero or this company is a hundred bagger. Yes, that's generally speaking, that's not the job. The job is basically, okay, this, this is a real business and a real business has, a, has some valuation, right? So it has risk, it has, it has opportunities. And where do you stand? Like, you know, if, if you think about like, you know, kind of a normal, if you think about a car, like a kind of distribution of valuation, right? Obviously it's not normal, nothing is normal distribution, distribution but let's say a distribution of valuation. And let's say in 90 out of 100 times, you think that the business, will, business should be, you know, should, should be able to do fine despite the risks, then, you know, you should be leaning more towards like the bull camp. Or if you think like, you know, it doesn't have to be even like, you know, even if it's like 90% of the time, the business should do fine, but in 10% of the time, it can be zero because of, let's say the interest rate goes up by two percentage points, right? Then it's probably not, you know, worth taking because it's a potential terminal zero, it can be zero like within a, like, you know, let's say five years or something like that. Then it's probably not worth taking the risk so it's always this kind of, you know, assessing the risk and opportunity and how you kind of like what sort of risk you are comfortable with and what sort of op opportunities you need to see to feel compelled to be a shareholder. It's always kind of a juggling between these two is what, what I feel like is my job. And writing does help you immensely because you have to appreciate and you have to force yourself to entertain both those viewpoints. And I, again, without writing, it's just very, very, very hard to do because I feel like we are so overly generous to ourselves in terms of like what we were thinking like three years ago, two years ago. <laughs> it's pathetic. And like, unless you really write it down, you will always be overly generous. And some people can be overly penalizing as well. Like, you know, who knows? It can be a character, different characters. People have different characters. Some people maybe just, you know, keep thinking about one mistake that they made like three years ago and they keep coming back to that. Again, writing it down, will just, you know, make you realize that, you know, you are probably not as stupid as you think you are. So yeah, like, you know, writing is definitely a huge part of my process. Yeah. I've had similar experiences with writing. So where it definitely helps me think and then going back and looking at it is always immensely valuable to find out what I was wrong about, what I was right about, that type of thing. 
Um, so you've talked about how when you analyze a company, you see equally valid bear and bull cases, I think, and radically shifting sentiment. So I think the best example of that is Meta. So, <laughs> so let's talk about Meta. So I believe you're still you're still a bull on Meta. You're still long Meta. So how do you see the situation for Meta right now? Yes. Yeah, so I yes I still own you know Meta, and I'm optimistic about about Meta in the long term. But I mean, obviously, you know, the risks that you talk about, some of them are still there. But I think, you know, one of the things that I have kind of appreciated over the, uh, I, I think I've held Meta for almost five years now. So I actually, I, I've been holding since 2018. So I kind of went through, you know, a lot more volatility than I, ex- than, than I expected, you know, holding something like Meta. But I think one, one of the things that I appreciated after holding the company and following the company for almost five plus years now is that you know this company has been attacked from multiple fronts yeah. over the like last I would say five seven eight years, and you wouldn't really realize it if you just look at the financials. You realize it was an easy peasy Japanese like you know it, it was a smooth flow, and it was anything but. And if, when I think about the last ten years, I feel like that, that it was a perfect moment to try to disrupt meta like you know you have zero interest rate environment so almost anyone can get funded if you have like a and and their basic whole pitch was like oh you know we have network effects and all that like you know look how facebook kind of grew out of nowhere you know we have the next facebook right so you know if you have a good idea if you have a kind of you know, a nice hook you probably get funded in this environment then you have like you know apple who has like, you know, very vested interest in disrupting like something like Meta, you know, yes, I'm a Meta shareholder, but I all, you know, and I know most Meta shareholders are not great, are not fans of Apple, let's say, right? Especially the way kind of, uh, they kind of, you know, dealt with ADT and all that stuff. But we have to kind of take a step back and, and kind of appreciate that Apple has built an enormously profitable platform on which Meta was able to, you know, Meta was definitely a beneficiary of yeah, how the smartphone contribution grew and increased across the world, right? And so Meta was a huge beneficiary of that, but Apple didn't quite get too much direct benefit from Meta, from, from that such. They, they did some indirect benefit, obviously, if smartphone, if Facebook or Meta's properties are, you know, so valuable that people want to spend time on, on their phone, people want to buy their phones, and that makes the smartphone itself is more lucrative. So apps play a kind of a symbiotic role. But the fact of the matter is, like, you know, for example, Google's rise within mobile internet was more symbiotic to Apple, like more uh, because they obviously get 20 billion plus direct profit coming from Google every year, right? But no, no such arrangement exists between Meta and Apple. So I understand the tension that exists and why that exists. And they did try to hurt Meta. Like, you know, I think it's pretty, uh, it, it's probably not too controversial to say Meta was one of the prime targets of the ATT policy that Apple came up with or the privacy narrative and all that. And they knew that it's going to probably hurt Meta. Such narrative. And then you have the 2016 election. So politically, and it's like, you know, Meta yeah, it's been all- one scandal and crisis after yeah. another. And I, and, but the company, like you mentioned, the financials continue to do yeah. okay. 
You wouldn't, you wouldn't realize. That's what I'm saying. You wouldn't really realize it up until 2022. I think what I'm saying is perfectly fine until 2021. Like if you look at the year financials between 2016 to 2021, like, I don't know, maybe 20 years down the line when a new analyst will look at Meta and they will look at 2015 to 2021 financials, they will be like, oh, it was such an easy buy. Like, you know, you could just buy it <laughs> growing so fast, right? And they wouldn't realize what, you know, the shareholders at that time actually would have to go through every day. Like, you know, someone else is trying to attack this business. And it was only in 2022, you start, you know, noticing in the financials that, hmm, maybe something is going, going in the wrong direction, right? And but you didn't realize it before that. But the point I'm trying to make is this company has been like, you know, people talk about moats, but the kind of a corollary concept is moat attack. That you only realize you have a kind of a, you know, very robust moat, impenetrable moat, when you have been attacked and you have survived it. Again, you not only survived it, you came out better after that, right? Yeah. So TikTok, for example, at, you know, Meta, and obviously time, time spent on TikTok was rising uh, pretty clearly, right? And there was legitimate question. I was concerned about this, that whether people's time spent on Meta's platforms will decline if TikTok's rise uh, continue unabated. And what it is basically, and, and, and the biggest concern was that although Meta was able to survive Snapchat stories threat, short form video is just a different beast. Like it's not, there is no sort of like, you know, network effects that comes from it. Like it's not socially connected. It's, it's disconnected from your social network, right? right. So, so there was a legitimate question and I was concerned whether Meta would be able to incorporate that format within their properties. And, and again, as you know, Reels is, you know, almost like, you know, 20, 25% of the total time spent today. 50% of time spent is basically on video overall. And, and introducing, and the launch of Reels has been incremental to the time spent on Meta's platform. So again, Meta wasn't aware of, Meta didn't, couldn't come up with this kind of format, but because one of their competitors did, they were quickly able, they were agile enough to kind of, you know, take that incorporate that in their properties and become beneficiaries of that kind of new and upcoming feature, right? That is something I have realized. Like, you know, if you think about transition to mobile, then stories, then you have short form video, all like this, all, 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 all these kind of separate features or, or themes could be a vector of irrelevance for Meta in the long term. But they, in each case, Again, they not only survived, they also ended up thriving because of those very competition competition attack that they faced. That is a very that is extremely rare, in my opinion. Uh, of all the companies that I have studied, it's very rare to see that companies not only survive more attacks but actually get better on the other side of it. So why do you think Meta can do that? So I agree with you. Meta constantly has its moat assaulted by all kinds on all kinds of different mm-hmm. angles and always seems to survive it. Is it Mark Zuckerberg? Is he like the secret sauce or is it something inherent in the platform? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind Meta is a better business because obviously there are many different reasons, but Zuckerberg is definitely significant aspects to 
how this business has been run, uh, had been run over the last 20 years. Like I keep coming back to the thing, like people, I think this is a trivial information, but I, I, I do think people seem to just, you know, get past it. Like Zuckerberg founded this company when he was 19 years old, right? And it's not like people took too long to realize that social could be a huge you know, theme. Like even in late, I would say 2000s, people kind of understood that, that you know, Facebook could be a big thing. So Google tried to do Google Plus, Snapchat came along, you know, Reddit was already there, Twitter came along. So, you know, and you were just a you know, 19 year old guy, like, you know, just look around and look at, you know, other 19 year olds and realize Zucker this, that was Zuckerberg when he actually founded this company. And he basically grew up with this company. Like this guy didn't have a, like, a, obviously didn't have a normal adult life. But, you know, the fact that he was such a young founder and was able to not only, again, withstand all these kind of, you know, vultures coming for his empire, but also he, he managed to build a $120, $30 billion revenue business. I, you know, this is something I kind of realized, again, a trivial information, but Zuckerberg was able to build roughly $100 billion gross profit business in like 20 years. There is no other business like that. There yeah. is no other, there is no other in the horizon that's going to do that. Open AI, maybe, who knows? I'm skeptical that they can do that. Like a gross profit, like you know, not just revenue, gross profit of $100 billion, an operating profit of $50 billion in 20 years. Right? It's incredible. Apple, Apple took like 40 years. Microsoft, Apple took like 35 to 40 years. Amazon is still not there. Obviously, there's like different quirks with Amazon, like with what they post as profit and all that. Like, um, let's not get into that. Google also took like, you know, probably 25, 20, 27, eight, 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 eight years, something like that. So like, this is something that Meta has been able to do under the helm of a very young founder. Like, you know, it's definitely unparalleled. That's why I was kind of always had to kind of check whether people are actually looking at the numbers because back in 2021, 2022, there was a very vocal group of investors who were deeply suspicious of Mark Zuckerberg because the way he is spending money on metaverse and like, you know, all, all that stuff. And I, I do my fair share of criticism of how he is spending the money on metaverse. And I, I, I have legitimate concerns, I think as well. And people who are making, I, I wouldn't say all, all of those are invalid points, but you have to realize, you have to kind of, you know, wrestle with the cognitive dissonance that we are dealing with a guy who, who is basically the only person in the history of human civilization who was able to connect the entire world over yeah. the course of a 20-year period, was able to build $100 billion gross profit business and an almost a trillion dollar market cap business. And He's also thinking about investing like 10, $15 billion on this kind of futuristic you know, project that he has in mind. Can he be wrong? Absolutely, he can be. You know, smart people are wrong all the time. Bill Gates was also thinking information highway back in like 1995, right? That didn't pan out. <laughs> I have that uh, book right there. Ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, so there's always a possibility, but we have to kind of deal with the cognitive dissonance. We are dealing with someone who's extremely successful who is basically, you know, it's, it's extremely rare. And he has another kind of, you know, exotic idea of what the future entails. So I do not, I, I do take his 
vision of future seriously. So if I were in 1995, I wouldn't basically, I, I wouldn't tell Bill Gates have no clue what, what, what the hell he's talking about information highway, like superhighway, it doesn't make sense. Like we're not going to do that. Yeah. And I would be right, but I think my process would be wrong. Like right. I, I would still, I, I do want to take Bill Gates' work seriously and what he's thinking and how he's thinking. I may still conclude that it probably doesn't make sense. It's probably not how things will play out. And I, I don't think any of the CEOs like Zuckerberg or Gates, they are in the business of predicting the future. They have a path, but they're, what, what really they're trying to do, they're trying to build organisms or like companies that can adapt to different situations. So even, even, even if Bill Gates was blatantly wrong about this information superhighway, he built a company that was adaptable enough to the changing world, to a, to a different world of like mobile, you know, smartphone world and, you know, cloud world, right? Microsoft yeah. was still able to adapt to this. It took some time, but they were still able to adapt to that kind of situation. So yeah, that's I mean, I- the book in broad terms is basically right, I think. Like he's talking about the world's going to become interconnected. He's wrong about a lot of the specifics. But, and I suspect Zuckerberg is kind of in the same vein. Yeah. I agree with you, like very similar with the metaverse. Like it may not work out the way exactly that he sees it, but mm-hmm. I kind of think that's the general direction we're headed in. Yeah, I mean, the two thing, broad thing that I, I kind of deeply agree with Zuckerberg on like his metaverse bet is basically, first is the idea of presence. I don't know whether we'll be able to, we'll, we'll, we'll like, you know, maybe the headset that we'll wear on our face will have to significantly evolve uh, or, and like, you know, gets, we'll need to get smaller and lighter and all, all that over the course of the next five, 10 years. But the idea of presence is incredibly compelling to me. Like so many people live apart from their family and have long distance relationship, right? And you know, live far from their loved ones. If you can create this sense of presence, I think it's very intuitive to me why we would crave that, right? Now, we, it's not about a world that will replace our like you know in-person meetings. It's about the stark reality for, or like an existing reality for most people. I, I'm from Bangladesh, right? Every single family member of, uh, like a family member of mine still lives in Bangladesh. There's no way, like if you say, hey, touch grass, go out and, you know, meet people, sure. But my f- entire family is in Bangladesh, right? Yeah. So, so if I can, you know, have a device that sends, that, that, that you know, creates a sense of presence, Right, that's really intuitive. That's really incredible to me. That I I may crave that, and people may crave that. So that's that's number one. And the number two is, you know, the idea of a glass, like you know, AR glass. So the first was basically I talk. I was talking about VR, virtual reality. The second is basically augmented reality. And again, the idea of glass, like you know, probably a billion people already wear glasses, like you know, on, on their everyday life. And if again, there's a lot of technological questions embedded here. Like, you know, it has to be, obviously, if you are wearing it all the time, it has to be very light. It has to be able to, like, you know, you need to be able to see a screen, right? If you still need a phone and, you know, like, you know, pull out your phone and to do stuff, then probably, you know, defeats the purpose. But if you want to replace your phone, you need to be able to see a screen and all this. So there are a lot of technological questions. And Zuckerberg talks about and Meta kind of hints at 
they have some of the answers to this question, but they haven't been able to figure out how to build these products at a consumer scale at a, at a price that would be palatable for that sort of wide adoption. So I think Meta's vector of attack on augmented reality and virtual reality is very wide. People think about, you know, Metaverse bed, when they think about, they think about almost, I could, if I could scan their brains, I, I'm almost certain they're thinking about the cartoonish, you know, Zuckerberg character that kind of goes around on Twitter and like, <laughs> but that's like nothing. That's like a nothing bet. That's like a 10, you know, they have like a, a 10, $15 billion investment on, on, on like, you know, AR, VR. It's just 50%, the first step. 50% of that investment is basically going to AR glasses, mm-hmm. which, you know, we don't even know the full range of functionality, right? It's still a very kind of a science project type of thing. And then 40% goes to virtual reality. Again, kind of perfecting how to make these headsets smaller, lighter, more functional, right? And then 10% is basically going to build the social network or like the apps within, like for, for those AR, VR world. We, you know, and that, that cartoonish Zuckerberg character that goes around, that part of the 10% investment, right? It's like nothing. Like even if that fails, even if Meta doesn't own any of this, like, you know, apps or social networks within uh, AR, VR world, it, it's probably not a huge deal for them on the bed of that, like, you know, AR, VR, like reality lab space. So, you know, when I think about the question of durability, which is basically the primary question for Meta over the long term or for many of these big tech companies, Meta is, you know, Meta revolves around connection, connection with people, Right. As long as you and I have a desire to connect with each other, Meta has been able to figure out a, a process or a system that allows us to do that, right? That allows us to connect with our family members, to our friends, extended friend, you know, friend networks in diverse surfaces. It's not just one single surface. Like it's not just Facebook. They, they also have Instagram. They also have, you know, WhatsApp. They also have Threads, they also also a messenger. So, you know, unlike let's say someone like Google, which I used to be a shareholder of, and, you know, Google has their core monetization tied to search. If they lose that core choke point, that is a, that's a huge, like, headache for them. But for Meta, it's like, you know, even if my kids never sign up for Facebook, they may be fine if they're, they're signing up for Instagram. Even if they don't sign up for Instagram, they may be fine if, you know, if they're using WhatsApp. Like there are question marks here, obviously, like whether they can monetize them as well as they do now. So, and those questions are something that you have to deal with. You have to kind of, you know, ponder on. But I think when I think about the long-term sort of, you know, durability, I feel a lot more comfortable about Meta than I would say Apple and Google. Microsoft and Amazon are probably, they, they don't quite face the durability question from investors yet. But in my experience, if I learn anything from covering big tech is basically everyone is potentially vulnerable. If you don't know how, with time, you will learn how. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And that's definitely an unconventional view that Meta has a stronger moat than the other big tech companies, but I like it. And I think no, it makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't say uh, stronger than everyone for sure. Like, I, but stronger I than Microsoft and stronger than Google. Amazon are probably the motier ones within big tech world. 
I, I do believe Meta, is a, Meta has a stronger mode than Google and Apple, despite the fact that those are the two businesses that own the platform, right? Right. But I think that, so the general convention that, you know, consensus view is Google and Apple are more tier businesses than Meta because they own the platform. Meta is just, you know, Meta is just, just an app on, on their platform, right? Like they own like a bunch of apps on their platform. So they're inherently vulnerable. That's the conventional consensus view. Mm-hmm. I, I think the challenge that I see is, yes, they own the platform, but it's the details that matters. Like they're not, like the people who say that they're not wrong in any of those kind of views, but the details, when, when you kind of, you know, look at the details, like, okay, how does Google make money? Like 60% of their revenue comes from Google search. Okay, how protected is that? Like that's a question mark, right? Now yeah. when it comes to Apple, like, okay, Apple makes like, you know, $20 billion operating profit coming from Google. If Google cannot save Google search, what happens to that pool of cash that goes to Apple every year? How do they recoup that lost profit, right? And then you also have like, you know, Apple is destined to be a hardware company like who also sells software, obviously, and compelling software. But the problem that they're destined to have to sell the hardware at, at an attractive profit. Like, you know, and that is literally what Meta is after. Meta's whole bit is basically adoption, adoption, adoption. We don't want to make money from hardware. We want to mm-hmm. make money from software. Now, Apple's whole brand, Apple's whole skill is basically not that. It's the opposite, right? That right. They, they want to make money from hardware. So they don't, when they launch, you know, their VR headset, the Vision Pro, they are still looking for like, you know, sizable margins there, right? So we'll, like, obviously they did an incredible job in protecting their profit pool. Like, you know, we have, if we had this conversation, like, I don't know, five, seven years ago, and if we talked about Apple, like that would be the key risk that people, I would be talking about, oh my God, like how, how could they pro- protect their profit pool, right? Like, you know, with the rise of like Google's, like with the rise of Android and Android phones, that would be the primary concern. And that's what basically, that's why the stock was trading at low multiple. And Apple has just proved everyone wrong. Not only are they able to protect their profit pool, you know, now it's has been consensus that, you know, they are kind of impenetrable. But I think there is an ounce of truth to that. Like if your whole business is basically selling hardware at pretty high margin, like it's so rare to sell hardware at, at any respectable margin. Like everybody wants to avoid hardware companies because nobody's convinced that you know hardware you, you can make a sustainable business by selling hardware companies at a at a, at a attractive margin. Apple is probably one of the very few companies who are able to do that. But the 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 risk is not obsolete. That that's what I'm trying to say. I think there is an ounce of truth to that, and it will be challenging. And how they transition, if there is a transition from smartphone to anything else, how they transition. Is a question mark. I'm not saying they won't be able to do it or they are right. there's, there's a question mark. There, there are questions that we do not have answers that market has kind of decided that we don't need to know the answers. Apple will be fine. Right. And that's something I'm not so sure about. Yeah, me either. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm sure there's going to be some point when kind of just like what happened with Meta, people will start asking the same questions about Apple once it has a little bit of a drawdown. Apple periodically goes through those cycles anyway. There's been multiple times in the last decade sure. when Apple was available at a 10 PE. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit from the world of tech, let's talk about dollar general a little bit. So 
I believe you're still long Dollar General. So yeah. so Dollar General is in a significant drawdown. I think it's around 50% right now. So how are you feeling about Dollar General right now? Yeah, I mean, again, like, you know, Dollar General has definitely legitimate questions. But I think, you know, two things I, I would say that kind of stand out when I think about Dollar General. This, this retailer has been around since the 60s, like, you know, like in Dollar General format since yeah. the 60s. And I think they have moved away from like, you know, purely dollar, dollar format. Like they now have multiple like price point, not just a dollar price point since the 90s, right? So it's been like 30 some years, 35 years almost. So this is a, like, you know, and if you have been to Dollar General, you know, I know like people on Twitter kind of real, you know, joke about it. Like if any investor actually sets their foot on Dollar General, they will not invest, <laughs> right? I did. I did uh, go to you know a few of them, and you know they were fine. Like you know, I think a primary mistake that many people make is basically they think the world only through their own eyes, through their own circumstances. Like if you are making I don't know like a couple couple hundred thousand grand, and like obviously you don't need to go to any of these Dollar General stores, and you feel disgusted that you know you know you have you want to you need to come to these stores where things are not well you know kind of shelved, like you know. The aisles are kind of in a bit of a disarray from time to time. There's only one person who's taking, like, who's helping you check out and there's no one else, you know, roaming around the store. Like, typically, the opposite of what you experience on the stores like, you know, Target, Whole Foods, where people basically, people are, who are making, like, you know, a couple hundred thousand grants are probably, you know, go to. And so they, they get a shock when they go to some, something like Dollar General and they're like, oh, my God, nobody's going to come to these stores, Right. So, and obviously they don't, they don't ask the more valid question, which is why did people come to these stores? Let's say Dollar General is a terminal right. business from here on, right? So, but in, like, you know, I think Morgan Hauser recently wrote this thing that I really, you know, left a mark on my mind. Like, you know, if you want to understand the future, you have to understand, like I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it memorized. Like if you, if you want to understand the future, you have to understand the past, right? And if you understand the past, you have, you, you, you realize you have, we have no idea where we're going, right? Because it would be so hard to explain the future, like explain, it would be so hard to predict today, like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? So when I, when I, when I, whenever I do a deep dive on a company that has been around for like decades, I always try to do kind of an imaginary time travel. Like, okay, let's say I'm in 1995 or let's say I'm in 2005. And this is the financials I'm looking at, right? What would be my concerns? What, what would I be worried about? And what happened? Oh, none of this happened. Why didn't it happen, right? So those are the kind of questions I, I, I would probably explore more on. So the reality is Dollar General sells convenience. It's not value. When people think about Dollar General, the first thing that probably comes to many people's mind is basically value. Like, you know, you, you get things cheaper, right? It's just a dollar. The reality is not, it's not a dollar. Most things are not a dollar on Dollar General stores. It's more than a dollar. The price point varies from, I don't know, a dollar to $10. And what they're really selling is convenience. You know, they are, you know, I think I forgot the data, something like, you know, within 10 miles of like, you know, 90% uh, Americans or something like that. Yeah. So, and, and in general, the, the nearest big box store is usually many, many miles away. Yeah. So they can kind of monopolize what's going on in that small area. Yeah, so if you think I'm mean, in some sense, they do provide value 
but you have to kind of calculate it in, di- in a different way. Like you have to think about, okay, what is, what is my cost to go to Walmart, shop there, then drive back to my place, right? So you have to kind of think about your gas cost and like, you right. know, and, and also obviously lower income people tend to shop around Dollar General stores or like Dollar Tree stores. And I think the different thing that they look for is basically if like the people who are shopping in the stores, like they, they don't have the money to buy at like, you know, a larger size items. Like, you know, when they're looking to buy, let's say a biscuit, like, you know, let's say on Walmart, it's like a $2 biscuit, but it's like, you know, maybe like on a par, you know, ounce or something like that. Like it's probably more, you know, value for money, but the people who are buying it, they don't have like $2 for biscuit. They only have, they only can afford a dollar. Yeah. I need it right now. And I need just what I need. Yeah. In many cases, they are just basically, you know, they have like, you know, they shop for like a few days, like two days, three days. Then they get paid another buy for like another, you know, couple of days. In many cases, they visit these stores two, three times per week, right? That is un- like, you know, always unheard of for like, you know, you don't go to Target every couple of days or every, like you don't go to Target three times per week, right? So it's a very different customer profile. So you have to keep that in mind you are probably not the target market for, for something like Dollar General. Unless you are, uh, you know, if it's right beside your home and you don't want to drive and you're just going there for like, you know, maybe a couple of times per month, but you are not the core customer. The core customer, basically the low income population of this country uh, who basically, you know, they, they don't have money to shop in Target or, or like, uh, or Walmart, right? So, so that's the thing. It's a very durable concept. The retail, you know, when you think about retail, obviously you think about like, okay, it feels very undifferentiated, just a big box stores, right? So it has to be durable. The retail concept has to be durable. And I think what Dollar General has been able to build is a durable concept. There is no other like Dollar General, like, not like, you know, I, there's no other dollar store that's going to pop up, right? Like, you know, there are people talking about like Temu and like, you know, like some other kind of, you know, low value items, like apps that people are buying online. But when you think about like, you know, the time, the delivery fees, the shipping fees, and, and again, it takes like five to seven days uh, for you to receive the items. These are not the core customers for Dollar General. Yeah. So, so that, like, that, that's the first thing that, you know, you have to understand why people go there, why people shop there, and why it has been a durable concept. I think, you know, the second thing is obviously they have some operational issues. You know, the pandemic was in many sense very disruptive for all retailers. Like they had to change the kind of a, a lot of in their, you know, process and workflow. And even, even companies like Amazon was bamboozled by the demand they have seen. They kind of overbuilt their warehouses and retail footprints. So they kind of had to redo some of that. So they, they had to kind of, you know, try different things. Dollar General, I think they did make some real mistakes there. Not only the pandemic was just difficult to manage, but also I think the mistakes that they made, that they didn't take advantage of the kind of, you know, like, you know, the extra demand that they have enjoyed during the pandemic, they, what they could have done, they took, instead of like, you know, posting record-breaking margins during those times, what they could have done is basically they could pay those, their laborers more. They could pay their shoppers more, like, you know, like the helpers more. They could pay 
uh, they could hire more people during that time. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do that. I think they are now suffering because of the choices they made around that time. Now, is it unfixable? That that remains that that is the key question. Right. I, I'm quite comfortable on the first question. Is is Dollar General a durable retail concept? I feel very confident in saying yes, it is a durable concept. It will be around 20 years from now. But is the current operational situation fixable and when? Those are more difficult questions. Now they're they they are posting six and a half percent operating margin this year. If you take like if you look at the last like 10 years of history, their average the some years higher, some years lower. Average was like eight and a half percentage point uh, operating margin. So 200 basis points you know, difference between what the current margins are and then what their average margins are. If you can go back to that level, like, you know, the stock is very attractive. So do right. you think they can go back to that level? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, like I said, that's a difficult question. Historically speaking, there are like two perspectives. Right? Like, you know, you can take like outside view and inside view. If you think about the re, you know, retail industry in general, it has proved multiple times very difficult for retailers when they kind of, you know, fall from grace and they, when they kind of, you know, lose their operational pro is. Generally speaking, it hasn't been like a quarter or two and things are back up. Generally speaking, it took either, you know, more than a couple of quarters, probably a couple of years, or things just continue to go disarray after that, right? So, so yeah, and, and base rates in, in retail turnaround is not super high. So I do think there, there are real question marks for, for Dollar General, but what really gives me comfort, I think my source of comfort comes from the remnants of the first question that I raised. As long as your concept is durable, right? As long as your customers keep coming back, because the main proposition, like USP or unique selling proposition is convenience, you have time to get things in order, right? So that, that is the source of comfort. Like, yes, things are not, these are, things are far from ideal right now, but they have probably a bit more time than most retailers to get things in order. Like if, for example, you know, if, I think one of the one of the retailers that really suffered recently was Big Lots. Now, mm. Big Lots, like you know, there are real alternatives, and it wasn't really clear what is the unique selling proposition of Big like Big Lots. Yeah, it seemed like I'm just another box retailer box, like you know, four wall box. So, and it's usually in close proximity to other boxes. Exactly, and if you like you drop the ball, if you are if you're someone like uh, Big Lots, and if you drop the ball, it can be really hard. To mm-hmm. you know, to come back from that, but for someone like Dollar General, I think they have a bit more time. It's not un- unlimited. Like if it takes like five years, yeah, probably not going to work out, right? Gotcha. But, you know, we, and we should see signs of improvement. I'm not expecting them to go back to eight and a half percentage point like next year, right? Mm-hmm. But we should be getting a lot closer to that, if not at that level in 2025, 2026, right? And if we don't, if we're still around 6.5% in 2025, 2026, then probably things are not great. And if it remains at that level for extended period, there will be pressure on the number one question as well, right? So 
so so that, that's how I kind of think about dollar general. Like again, like I said before, I'm not saying the people who are asked who are raising questions about dollar general operations and all that are stupid. There's there's an ounce of truth to that, right? So well, the, 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 where basically the, I guess the views diverge is basically I think it is more likely than not that it is fixable and they can go, go back to closer to the average operating margin that they have experienced over the last 10 years. And it's not the first time that they are facing issues. They have faced issues before and they did come, you know, come out of it. It took, it didn't take like a couple of quarters. It, it did take like, you know, more than a couple of quarters, but they have a history. Like in, if you're, if you've been around for 50, 60 years, obviously you have gone through all sorts of environment, all sorts of like, you know, challenges. Yeah. That's why that's why you have been around for 60 years, right? So, yeah, so uh, that, that's basically how I think about Dollar General. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. This was a great conversation. What are the best ways for people to learn about you and reach you? Yeah, uh, so on Twitter, I am, my account is mostly Borrowed Ideas. And I publish my, like I said, monthly deep dives on a company that I choose on my website, you can just Google MBI deep dives. MBI is basically the full form of mostly board ideas. If you are, you know, on threads, I'm again on the same name, mostly board ideas. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, thank you. Again, I appreciate you for inviting me and uh, enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.